And here come the Greeks, led out by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Nobby Hegel. The Greeks are going mad! The Greeks are going mad! This is Philosophy for Theologians, your regular look at issues in philosophy from a Reformed Christian perspective. My name is Camden Busey, and we are broadcasting live out of Studio B in Glenside, Pennsylvania. I have a cast of characters with me today. A number of people are going to be speaking about a very interesting subject. And to introduce first, we have to my left, Bob LaRocca, who is a student at Westminster Theological Seminary. Hey, Bob. Hello. Hello. Bob! Bob! <laughs> Bob! Bob! We also have another one of our regulars, the Director of Admissions at Westminster, Jared Oliphant. <laughs> Red Oliphant. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Thank you for having me, Camden. And perhaps the most favorite jingle that we have. Jonathan. Brack. Who is admissions counselor at Westminster Theological Seminary. Thanks for having us over, Jonathan. It's uh, it's great to be up in your attic. (laughs) It's great to be home in my attic. And, of course, uh, we do have a special guest today who is going to provide the uh, subject of discussion. We're very pleased to have our good friend Daniel Schrock who is also a student at Westminster and uh, hopes to do future philosophical work. So thanks for joining us, Daniel. It's a pleasure to have you here. Glad to be here, Camden. We are going to be speaking today about David Hume and about his philosophy, particularly his view of miracles. And uh, Daniel's going to uh, help us get through uh, a paper that he wrote. It's going to, we're going to use that as the starting point of our discussion. His title, or The title of his paper is Hume's Argument Against Belief in Miracles. He wrote this for kind of the uh, the standard and the, the the premier apologetics class at Westminster, uh, in which we have to write uh, a pretty substantial apologetic paper at the end of the class. And so Daniel has brought his excellent paper with him today for us to discuss David Hume. Uh, but as we get started, would somebody like to give just a really brief introduction to David Hume and maybe explain? Uh, just in in, in uh, broad strokes, who David Hume was. Daniel, would you like to do that? Scottish philosopher, empiricist. And empiricism, <laughs> for know. those who might not understand or not might not be that familiar, what is what is Scottish? <laughs> <laughs> philosopher. Now, could you explain empiricism, maybe just in a couple sentences, if possible? Uh, empiricism. Uh, specifically David Hume and his his division between uh, two sources of knowledge uh, hung most of of his epistemology on what he termed matters of fact uh, or impressions, sensory impressions, uh, that those are uh, our primary source of of knowledge in the world. Obviously, other philosophers ran with that. It was a huge tenet in logical positivism, which I heard y'all talked about a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, They draw a lot on... A lot of David Hume's work, so heavy, heavy hitter. David Hume was, <laughs> needless to say, yes. <laughs> and uh, as we were joking before the recording started, and we were not speaking about the character from Lost, the television <laughs> series, that was Desmond Hume. That's right. Uh, but perhaps uh-huh. there's probably much more than a coincidence that he was named Hume. But uh, we were speaking about the Scottish philosopher. There was right. a John well, Locke on the show. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of yeah. philosophy Who got references renamed there. Jeremy Bentham. I mean, oh, as a yeah. joke, yeah. You know, yeah. Like, the utilitarian. And then later, John Calvin, which was an uh-huh. odd turn. Yep. <laughs> no, that's not true. But <laughs> really, John, if you ask Quines, though. <laughs> yeah, right. right. No if you ask yourself, why was Desmond Hume given that name? 
I find no connection. No, yeah, he just, wasn't really yeah. a lyricist. Here's something that might Brother. make you think yeah. for a little bit. It's one of those red herrings on Lost where you're like, could this be? No. It doesn't. <laughs> you throw those in there and then yeah. people look into yeah. them and it Sorry. doesn't have anything Meaningless. to do with it. <laughs> well, uh, let's uh, get into this paper and it's divided into three uh, three divisions. Could you just uh, go through and describe those uh Damn. Sure. Uh, the first first section of my paper was setting up his argument against belief in miracles. Um, second section is, in good Fantilian fashion, an internal critique of uh, Hume's epistemology. Yeah. Uh, and the the last section is a, is a positive response to uh, from a uh, reformed Christian perspective to his his argument against belief in miracles. So those are my three sections. So setting glory. up the problem. What is the issue? <laughs> is Hume like miracles? <laughs> um, well, uh, what prompted me to write the, write the paper to begin with was the debate between Christopher Hitchens and Doug Wilson that took place at Westminster. Uh, a year, it was about a year ago. Last. It was October of 08, I think. Mm. Yeah, okay, Going so that's like a year yeah. and a half ago, almost yeah. two years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, in, in that... One of the things that Hitchens pressed against Wilson in that debate was basically Hume's argument against miracles. What he asked, Hitch, uh, what Hitchens asked Wilson was, um, if he does he believe in the? Uh, I, I think the specific miracle he referenced, the two of them were one one about Muhammad uh, and his his uh, transportation on some magical deer like thing to Jerusalem, <laughs> um, and then. Thomas Aquinas Rain floating years. around. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> its name was Barack. I remember that. I just. Anyway, pointless mm. information. Um, and then the other one about Aquinas floating around. It's a blessed reindeer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know. and he, he, asked, he asked Wilson if, if he believed those, the accounts of those miracles, and, and Wilson said, of course, no. And Hitchens' response was, why, why then do you only believe Calvinist uh, res, uh, accounts of miracles? And so Hume's, Hume's argument against belief in miracles is very much in use today. And in fact... Uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of the backbone behind uh, earlier 20th, I guess, turn of the late late 19th century biblical criticism, a character like Ernst Trost, you know, his his yeah. three uh, his three principles of, um, you know, biblical criticism or probability and uh, correlation was his third and and and. What the second one was, but it, it basically his his dismissal, that liberal dismissal of uh, scriptural accounts of miracles, a lot of it hinges on what uh, Hume set up in his inquiry to human into human, concerning human understanding. Um, and uh, for the listener, uh, just complete sidebar: if you go to the Wilson Hitchens debate, I think it's uh, part eleven or twelve, where students ask. Uh, Danny actually asks a question on there, and he's actually the image that you see. It's I forget if it's the if if it's twelve or twelve or eleven or twelve, but um, he's featured. On that debate, that's uh, I was wearing so, a lovely right. brown and, turtleneck in in fine idiotic French fashion. Um, well, coming for full beret. circle, no. a lot of people comment <laughs> that uh, Danny looks time. a lot like Daniel Faraday from <laughs> Lost. Right. He looks like so the uh, Lost episode. So circle yeah. of life. Gordon uh, and, Gordon Stein in the Bonson Stein debate also brings up uh, Hume's critique of miracles. Yeah, uh, particularly there's the probability of nature going out of its course uh, against the probability that somebody could lie about nature going out right. of its per yes. course. That, yeah. That millions of lies are told, you know, every year or, you know, every, you know, in, in, in a short amount of time, but nature going out of its course is very, very, very small, if 
even anything of a of, of an occurrence in history. Yeah, and so, that's, that's basically a version of what what Hume propounds in his in his section on belief in miracles. Um, and uh, the power in the argument is it it makes like particularly like with Wilson in that debate, it ma- it made him look arbitrary in his choice of to believe this particular set of accounts of miracles. Yeah. And that's, that's really the challenge that uh, the Christian apologist, the Reformed apologist, has to meet is answering uh, why it's not arbitrary. And I, I discussed some of that in, uh, in my paper and set up a specific example of, of how we actually exercise uh, the same sort of skepticism that David Hume uh, sets forth in our, in our daily beliefs. Uh, and that's, that's really what makes it Right. The challenge to answer is that we we are functional skeptics, uh, uh, and for same for the same reasons that he uh, advances in his in his essay. Uh, but you know, we, what we have to do is we have to uh, create an account of why uh, scriptural accounts of miracles are in a different category altogether. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and, and I think Van, Van Til hit it on the head when he said, "You you kill miracle and you kill Christianity. Christianity is a historical religion, uh, and it's." As the Apostle Paul says, if, if, if Christ isn't raised, you know, we're, we're to be most pitied of all men. Yeah. Our, our whole, uh, the whole enterprise of, of liberalism sort of collapses on itself because all you're left with – you're not really left with Christianity. You're just left with an ethical, ethical system, um, which – and if that's the case, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of others out there. It's a problem um, with liberalism. Right. Not only yeah. Van Til, but also Machen before him. That's, that's, yeah. that's right. That's right. And so um, you know, this, is, this is really something that's at it, – it may, it may seem – Especially as reformed people, it may seem something that's sort of at the periphery of things we like to engage because we don't, you know, we, we're not charismatics. We don't like to talk about necessarily miracles, but it's it's at the you know it's at the heart of our of our faith, uh, our, our historic faith. Oh yeah. Um, so, but um, let's see if I can get into his basic argument. Uh, it's 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 helpful to start by examining how he he constructs the idea of a miracle. The first thing he defines it as is basically a a violation of the laws of nature, mm-hmm. uh, and that that definition he he eventually sort of uh, abandons in his in his essay uh, because I, I, I don't not to speculate on why he did that, but it will that 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 definition is is very problematic, especially if you're uh, familiar at all with the discussions in, in contemporary philosophy of science over you know what what exactly is a law of nature you know that he. And Hume never never actually takes the time to define what he means uh, by a law of nature, and that's one of the things that I intend to sting him on, <laughs> um, even though he's not here to defend himself. Yeah, that's interesting. Just from my own familiarity with Hume, I would think that he wouldn't really take that um, that route of defining a miracle in that way. Yeah, and that's he sort of he sort of just leaves it. I think he he offers a more helpful. Um, statement of what he thinks a miracle is, and I think this is closer to what we understand. He says, uh, nothing is esteemed a miracle if it ever happened in the common course of nature. Uh, and that, I think it's a little bit closer to uh, what we refer to when we talk about a miracle. Um, but this is the age of Newtonian physics, where there are natural physical laws which govern the universe. Mm-hmm. And um, so nat- natural law, even nor- morally and politically, um, was... Were the governing principles on how we do philosophy, science, and uh, and politics. So I think that's kind of the context. It's the, historical the, context. Yeah, the eighteenth, right. the eighteenth yeah, century may, context it, here is, is an Enlightenment natural law context. Now, I'm yeah, not saying and, and, he's and a natural be, law it may theorist. Be a, and I, it is a bit unfair to demand of Hume the sort of analytic explication that we have in contemporary twentieth century analytic no. philosophy. Um, in in some in some regards, but he does. 
Um, if you read him as opposed to some of the continental thinkers, he's a lot closer to the analytic tradition in terms of his, yeah, that's his, right. him carefully attempting to define concepts uh, and, and get at uh, philosophic understanding through that. So, he's an Enlightenment philosopher. That's right. Yeah, and he's systematic. Yeah, so um, but his I th- his second statement I think is a little bit better. You know, if something something that doesn't happen in the common course of nature, that's the sort of thing we're, we're talking about when we're talking about miracles. Um, and so you know, I mean, certain, basically the idea is that certain regularities are observed in nature, and when scientists engage in a method of testing and retesting hypotheses, um, certain effects are regularly joined to certain causes. That's what that's what science does. Is it goes and examines those. Uh, that, that coordination between cause and effect, regular cause and effect. Um, and there's a quote, another quote here. He says, all, all probability rests then, uh, su- uh, supposes an opposition of experiments and, and observations where the one side is found to overbalance the other and to produce a greater, uh, produce a degrees of evidence proportion to their superiority. So uh, you know, Hume, he, he attempts to, uh, get at what what are scientists doing when they're when they're doing experiments and how do we derive uh, probability or calculate probability based off of scientific experimentation and so what you do is you 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 perform experiments and you you weigh your your results and you calculate your probability based off of the numbers of, of, of results that you get on one side or or, or the other exactly. of, of an experiment um, and he's you know he's not so radical uh, a skeptic to require everyone. To do this personally, I mean, he he uh, he will rest in a, in the the scientific observations of a community of a scientific community. You know, he he rests a lot in testimony, uh, so he's mm. not you know he's not that deep of a skeptic to require you uh, to be skeptical of of every opinion around you that you mm-hmm. have to personally go and investigate nature yourself in order to be able to calculate probability. And what was some of the reaction of the common sense realists then? Was that somewhat of a, re- a reaction to this detailed skeptical procedure that Hume wanted or preferred? Read, yeah. For instance, yeah. Say, uh, say repeat your question. Uh, what's there? Well, I'm just wondering: is the Scottish sense realism movement was that more or less a reaction uh, to Hume's desire there to actually do all these prob- probabilistic measures in order to well, be able know, to believe something, even though I, he did rest on the scientific community? Yeah, I, I don't know if if um, like someone like Thomas Reed's philosophy would be directed against that portion of Hume's okay. philosophy. Um, to my knowledge, very limited knowledge, it's it's directed against uh, like his questions on deep skepticism, mm. um, and and even what one of the things that we'll talk about. I do talk about my paper, uh, which is connected to a skepticism, the problem of induction, uh, which is really what to use Kant's phrase, wakes him from his dogmatic slumber. Slumbers. Um, you know, that's, that's, right. a huge, that's a huge thing. The Germans are disputing it. <laughs> Hegel is arguing uh. that the reality is merely an a priori adjunct of non-naturalistic ethics, <laughs> chant by the categorical imperative, is holding that ontologically exists only in the imagination, and Marx is claiming it was offside. Oh. <laughs> right, so he's yeah. woken up from his dogmatic slumber. That's only right. To, I mean, only to, to fall into <laughs> an abyss of uh, numinous nothingness. Right, into a <laughs> yeah. slavery of idealism. Well, uh, just Going back to uh, your comment on the testimony of others, he deals with that a fair amount in this um, in this portion on yeah. miracles. Yeah. Uh, how, how would you describe his uh, understanding of where the testimony of others um, is in terms of our you know epistemology or certainty in those kinds of questions? Well, uh, he he says. Let me see if I can find the quote. Um, 
I think this is a helpful quote here. The reason why we place any credit in witnesses and historians is not derived from any connection which we perceive a priori between testimony and reality, but because we are excuse me, accustomed to find conformity between them. Uh, but when the fact attested as such is one as has seldom fallen under our observation, here is a contest of two opposite experiences of which the one destroys the other as far as its force goes, and the superior can only operate on the mind by force which remains. So uh, he's, the, he, he's, he's not a rationalist. He's not going to construct an a priori uh, system to, to define why we should rely on the testimony of others, um, you know, and like perhaps maybe uh, a contemporary like reliabilist would yeah. in, in, in contemporary epistemology. Yeah. Um, but he, he does... Uh, yeah, he, he falls back on this notion of of us being accustomed to find a, a conformity between the two, and which is very, I guess, very much an empirical idea. You know, that that's right. where we where we get our trust of of men's testimonies and our actual experience that uh, testimony is is reliable. Right, it's uh, it's very similar to Quan. I mean, in a sense, you could almost call it pragmatic. Yeah, that's right. End. Yeah, it's a, he, whatever explains sort of the most for the way our I don't want to put it this way, but that's the way he puts it. Our cultural posits put before us and so that's a sort of pragmatic at the end yeah he says uh, one quote uh, or a couple quotes that i'll mention um he says we may observe that there is no species of reasoning more common more useful and even necessary to human life than that which is derived from the testimony of men and the reports of eyewitnesses and spectators so he's very much okay with that yeah um, being a source of something that you can rely on um and then a little further he says we frequently hesitate concerning the reports of others we balance the opposite circumstances which cause any doubt or certainty. And then he goes on a little later. We entertain a suspicion concerning any matter of fact when the witnesses contradict each other, when yeah. they are but few or of a doubtful character. So, he, you know, he's, um, he's definitely an empiricist, but he doesn't discount the testimony of people. It just needs to be weighed among the other sources of evidence as well. Yeah, and that there's a certain set of conditions under which we uh, will accept the testimony of other people, and there's a certain set of conditions under which we will hold their testimony in yeah. suspicion, and that's what he outlines. And uh, you know, the way he goes about doing that is what creates the problem for belief in in, in miracles of any sort. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's it's when it's when the witnesses or the those giving the testimony. Um, when their when their testimony uh, his one of his favorite phrases is when they when it participates in the um, the fanciful or the extraordinary or something that's that's out of the ordinary is when uh, that begins to reduce the believability of their testimony uh, and and that's that's what's that's what's difficult is that we uh, we do actually practice uh, even as Christians that sort of uh, skepticism in our everyday life uh, so. And I'll get at get at that here um, in a moment. And, and yeah, you know, we would we, so our, our belief in the reliability of testimony is judged by the things that we we observe in the course of our life. So um, uh, if there's if, if especially like if someone's motives are tainted when they give me testimony, I'm going to hold their testimony in suspicion, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be as reliable as someone who's disinterested yeah. in the situation, for instance, in a court of law. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, we would agree with that. We would agree with Hume on, on a lot of uh, a lot of his criterion that he creates for why we should and shouldn't hold certain testimonies as as being reliable. Yeah. Um, if if someone has a ton to gain uh, by what they're you know reporting, um, then you kind of hold that with a little bit of suspicion because you know that they have a vested interest, and so he applies that principle 
to Christianity and says, look, miracles, uh, if someone's reporting on that, they have tons to gain by claiming that they have seen a miracle or believe in miracles or whatever. So you have to hold that um, with a little bit of skepticism. Yeah, and especially right. if, someone, if someone's testimony participates in what he calls the extraordinary and the marvelous. And this is the example I used in my paper. Suppose I have a, I'm a father, I have a small boy who comes home from the playground and he has mud on his clothes. And I ask him, you know, why, why do you have mud on your clothes? And he tells me, well, because a dinosaur flung mud on my clothes, Daddy. Uh, and I'm going to hold that testimony in suspicion. I'm not going to believe that testimony. And the reason is, you know, why will I do that? Well, because of the reasons that Hume sets out, because it participates in extraordinary and marvelous explanation that I do not observe in the North. Not only do I not uh, – have I seldom observed that? I've never observed a dinosaur. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. Just in case you were wondering, um, I was going to say that I mean, that's particularly true for Reformed Christians. I would say more yeah. so than any other denomination. Right. What do you mean in terms in of the current of, day? Yeah, which yeah. is you know we hold um, s- a, such a, a strong view of sin. You know, so you have you know some sort of uh, fanciful account of someone say you know I yeah. saw a, a vision and the vision is you need to give a lot of money to this church. Yeah. As reformed Christians, we're going to be Even like in Christian you're dead circles. in your sins. And, you're, <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. it's just like that doesn't because we have you know a, a really strong doctrine, and so a lot of stuff is going to be really we're going to hold yeah. it in suspicion. Yeah. And so, like, um, you know, say, for instance, our, uh, my boy is normally an honest boy, but, and, and, but now he's telling me this fanciful account of, of a dinosaur flinging mud on his clothes. And so what happens there is what Hume outlines is you have a contest between two normal beliefs, my belief that my boy is honest and my belief that this is not something that happens in, mm-hmm. in normal everyday life, and I'm not inclined to believe it easily uh, because it's so fanciful in, in his explanation. So presupposition here is uh – Miracles are should be tested like everyday data. It's the same as any other kind of yeah, account. It doesn't give a get a pass. And so the only the, the what, what this like almost every philosophy that's come down the pipe is just cannot deal with authority. Yeah. Well, but um, we're we're going to face some difficulties in outlining what exactly a miracle is anyway. Um, I mean, if you start if you start probing and trying to explicate that concept, even as Reformed Christians, I think we, we do have to be very careful uh, in, in in understanding what we mean by it. And right, like a baby um, being born is a miracle. Yeah, well, yeah, it's but not miracle. even that. But uh, even like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, life is a miracle. There's, you know, there's lots of things in Scripture which uh, are not necessarily suspension of laws of nature. There's there, that we would still term miraculous. For instance, the the example I mentioned in my paper is uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, you know, Exodus mentions that it's it's dried up by a strong east wind. So what you have is you have actual uh, natural causes. Glory that, spirit. Well, yeah, okay. Decline. Decline club. You have some sort of. Uh, uh, 0.02% of people will get that. <laughs> but good. That's right. If you're in that sad, sad minority, welcome, welcome to our sad, sad little I like court. how Bob just said it. <laughs> just blank face. Glory spirit. <laughs> Glory spirit. It's like, it's like a robot. Hey, hey, you guys name what else hovers over the waters. It causes them to separate, all right? <laughs> we're more commenting on the brevity and the nature of the comment rather than... Yeah, we're, but, we agree with you. Yeah, right yeah. yeah I, I agree. Uh, but, but, no, that's yeah. a good point, though, because it's not... Not there natural. is a secondary cause there. Yeah, yeah there's, there's secondary causes um, 
that are what we would maybe term natural or maybe not even a suspension of the normal laws of nature uh, can still be uh, termed miracles if they're if they're an extraordinary and incredibly uh, and this is a non-Calvinistic word, but fortuitous, uh, you know, way that they like with Israel, you know, that it's it's just it just so happens that they're at the Red Sea and strong wind parts <laughs> the waters for them, you know, yeah. that the incredible coin, coincidence of events, you know, that in the in its extraordinary manifestation, that's what's miraculous about it. It's not necessarily that there's normal laws of nature being suspended; it's that uh, it's unusual uh, and it's and it's it's marvelous in in that way. So there's. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to get to, to that in, in the course of this, this paper. Actually, I do get to it in the course of the paper, but in the course of our discussion. Uh, but going back to our little boy, our muddy little boy. Um, <laughs> and the dinosaur. That's right, and, the, and his dinosaur. You know, my, my belief in the authority of my child's claim is destroyed by his marvelous uh, explanation of what had happened. And so, you know, had this, had this explanation not included such marvelous accounts, such extraordinary accounts, say if my boy told me that he was muddy because of bully threw him in the mud, uh, I would be more inclined to believe my child than even if he was lying. And the reason I would be more inclined to believe him is because that's a, that's a normal uh, circumstance that's fallen under my observation as a human being. And so as a parent, if my boy comes to me and tells me that instead of a dinosaur flung mud on his clothes, yeah. even if he is lying, I'm more – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe him. I'm going to believe him uh, because of – or I'm going to disbelieve him in the case of the, of the dinosaur specifically for the reasons that Hume – lays out sometimes people have called that sort of thing a plausibility structure yeah i was gonna say probability yeah yeah, yeah probability is very very it's at, it's at the heart of what he's what he's talking about you know assigning probability to certain uh certain events in people's accounts and then basing our belief off of those probability calculations. yeah and things become more plausible mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's, that's right. a scientific method yeah and I, I would say you know that that should be our practice as christians in normal circumstances uh the question is then why uh, should it not be our practice in, in the case of uh, canonical accounts of miracles? Uh, and that's what I attempt to argue in my paper is that, that uh, you have a different set of circumstances there that actually create different epistemological circumstances for us. Mm. Uh, but to get on with, uh, with Hume's um, account here, let's, let's just assume that it's what he, the way that we should define a miracle is that it partakes in some sort of extraordinary uh, extraordinary set of events uh, where a cause that we it seldom or, or rarely falls under our observation is conjoined to uh, uh, an, well an effect is, is is conjoined to a cause in a way that we don't observe normally. Mm. Um, and so uh, let's see here. I'll try to rifle through my paper and, and cut some things out. Um, well, and j- just to read one more quote to just kind of get Hume's own words. Um, he says this is. Uh, in the beginning of part two, he says, for first, there is not to be found in all history any miracle attested by a sufficient number of men of such unquestioned good sense, education, and learning as to secure us against all delusion in themselves, of such undoubted integrity as to place them beyond all suspicion of any design to deceive others, of such credit and reputation in the eyes of mankind as to have a great deal to lose in case of their being detected in any falsehood, and at the same time attesting facts performed in such a public manner and in so celebrated part of the world as to render the detection unavoidable, all which circumstances are requisite to give us a full assurance in the testimony of men. So, there, you know, as miracles go, there's not um, 
any case where that has happened and everyone's like, oh, yeah, that definitely happened. I mean, unquestionably, that's the case, um, as as we see in other historical events. Yeah, and, you know, and he'll, yeah, he uses that to summarily dismiss uh, any account of miracles. Yeah. Uh, because, um, yeah, and, and he, he does, in, he lays out like four reasons for, for why um, a certain set of conditions that he lays out for accepting miracles can never be met. And that's, that's the section uh, that you're reading is, is he, uh, I believe is where he lays out uh, at least part of those, those reasons. And he does in some way, at one point he does engage in a bit of an ad hominem. Um, when he talks about barbarous culture. That's right. Yeah, uh, he does. And that's, it's that, that one's kind of a sticky issue because the, a person's character does come into play when you uh, calculate whether or not uh, his testimony is reliable. So, um, you know, whether or not that ad hominem there, he sort of, his is a little bit more ridiculous, especially to our our enlightened postmodern ears, because he he does it against an entire cultures. Yeah, Israel. Less refined. And that's his his implication is that, uh, you know, ancient Israel and, uh, you know, and and then the the church... um, that they were they were really barbarous and unrefined. Yeah. And just that, a primitive people. They don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah. They were kind of delusional, and this was ancient times, and so you could get away with it back then. Which is funny because in, when Moses was uh, doing the plagues to uh, Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's magicians were they were doing their own right, just sort of you know. So in other words, there was a lot of culture already that was steeped in sort of illusion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you know barbarous. No way. I mean, they had the uh, the wherewithal to do some of to do reaction plagues to Moses. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think I mean, just you know, to be human for a second, I think he would say the reason we believe that that was the case with the other ma- magicians was because it was written in the Bible, and that was you know he he makes a comment that the things written in the Bible were after the fact, and they were written by people who had a vested interest in what they were writing, and so That's you really true. can't yeah, take that, that testimony. So it's it's kind of, he just lumps that all, including the, the testimony in the Pentateuch, as they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's true. yeah, and so, to bring it back home again, you know, we exercise this, we exercise that sort of skepticism in our daily life. Even the most avid non-cessationists, even, you know, people in charismatic Christian circles are still going to look at our muddy little boy with suspicion. Hmm. Um, you know, they're not, uh, even though they, they may be very uh, ready to buy into accounts of miracles that they haven't witnessed, uh, they, would be, they would still exercise that same sort of suspicion in their everyday life. And that's what really makes the argument powerful. And that's what makes, um, and, and Hume will actually go on to say that, you know, when, what you have in every religion, and this is what you were talking about, like with the, the magicians, you have, uh, in every religion, you have sort of accounts of miracles. And right. so what – and he, he uses a courtroom analogy to say when you have uh, two men witnessing to a man's whereabouts and then another two, two men who contradict those two witnesses, you have to discount both of them in, in, in a courtroom setting. And so his argument is that uh, ultimately when we take all the accounts of miracles together, they all uh, – in, 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 in all religions, they destroy each other in the end. And that, that, was, that was Hitchens' point in the debate yeah. against Wilson. Is that uh, you know your your choice? Uh, his the point he was pressing is that your choice is arbitrary. Why are you picking uh, this this set of miracles when there's a whole other uh, host of different sets of miracles you could choose to uh, believe in? And so 
Um, what I posed in my paper then is that uh, basic, Christians appear, if, if, we, if we just take these circumstances where Hume leaves us uh, and, and recognizing that we do exercise that sort of skepticism, we're left on the horns of a dilemma. And this, this is my, the one horn uh, of the dilemma, we, we adopt an attitude of skepticism toward the accounts of miracles from other religions and extraordinary testimonies like the one given by the muddy little boy and then consistently apply that attitude of skepticism toward the testimonies of miracles found in the canon of Scripture. Uh, and obviously, liberalism was very uh, apt to, to rush in onto that horn. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and just to discount scriptural accounts of, of miracles. A lot of Christians probably are still tempted to do that. Uh, the other horn is that uh, we naively accept all testimonies. Um, we hear no matter how improbable they are in order to consistently accept the testimony of, of miracles in the canon of Scripture. So those are the two horns that sort of challenge us uh, in, in, in what Hume sets out apparently. And so the question right. is how do, we, how do we not impale ourselves on either of those? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, That's the, that is the perennial problem in philosophy is how to be realist and, uh, and, and also be critical at the same time. Yeah. Is how, you know, how to uh, believe in something that survives criticism and not allowing our criticisms just to go the whole way and discount everything. Yeah. And how, and how not to be naive on the other side as well. Yeah. Pretty much all philosophers have tried to attain this. Yeah. And uh, so we're going to see how David Hume decides. And have failed. Well, right, and, this is, and this is sort of... That's, Every that's, single one. Brad. That's basically... <laughs> I mean, that's, that's basically the sum of Hume's argument. And that's it. And uh, you can see how it's, it's a very powerful argument because you, when you exercise that sort of normal skepticism in your everyday life, uh, it's, it's, you're going to be hard-pressed, especially if you're an average Christian who's not trained in philosophy and trained in uh, doing Van Tillian critiques of how to answer that. Because so, you right. you'll very easily recognize uh, how you do exercise that. And so uh, you might be very, very tempted to um, go, well, maybe you're right. Maybe I do need to exercise that skepticism towards uh, what's in Scripture. So uh, that's the power there. Uh, so that brings me to the second, our, our actual critique. Mm. Of, of Hume. Uh, well, for, first, the, the, the negative response, which is the internal critique, yeah. and then our positive response to uh, to his problem. So, I mean, Hume's epistemology obviously is, is empir- empiricist, uh, and uh, his first distinction is that he makes in his, in his epistemology is between ideas and impressions. Uh, we have, uh, and and there's there's a second. Dog, there, well, there's three dogmas. Let's put it that way. There's three dogmas in his, his epistemology. One, the distinction between ideas and impressions. The other one is the distinction between relations of ideas and matters of fact. And that eventually gets transformed into the uh, synthetic analytic uh, distinction later in Kant. Uh, and then this is his third dogma that I've, I've termed a dogma. That's, he doesn't actually uh, focus on this as sort of a... a centerpiece in the same way that he does the other two but this is listen to the this is his conclusion this is a pretty famous uh, excerpt from uh from his inquiry t- concerning human understanding uh, he says we we may run over libraries persuaded of these principles what havoc must we make if we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics for instance let us ask does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or numbers no does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matters of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. And so um, 
you know, heat. School Hume, metaphysics, huh? That's right. And Hume, as an empiricist, he just he summarily dismisses metaphysics as a viable philosophical enterprise. Uh, that that it's it's out of the question. Uh, and as you guys talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, or I guess a month ago now, logical positivism does the mm-hmm. same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You have you have uh, the only meaningful statements are those that can be tacked down to. Uh, empiric things that you can observe in your Verify. empirical statements, and that you know that's that gets us to his his distinction between ideas and impressions. You know, you have um, you have ideas in your head, which include not just uh, mathematical ideas, but even even your your memory, your recollection of of former impressions. Right now, are no longer your impressions; they're your ideas of your impressions. Right, and then you have your actual impressions that you're having at this moment, all your sensory data that's that's going on inside of your brain uh that those are your your two your two basic um things that you can you can have epistemologically according to hume's uh philosophy uh and then he goes on to say that all all of our thoughts really resolve themselves into such simple ideas as were copied from a precedent feeling or statement so he's that's his that's his empiricism is that everything comes from Impressions, everything, uh, as opposed to, I mean, historically, he would be he would be set over against the rationalists at this point, who would who would hang a lot on innate ideas, guys like Descartes, Leibniz, and Spinoza, and that, the whole rationalist tradition that uh, discounts sensory impressions and wants to hang uh, their hat on the a priori and right. innate, innate, what they would call innate ideas, um, and you know, Hume's like his his empiricism is is, is incredibly influential with. Not just logical positivism, but even before that, like a character like John Stuart Mill yeah. uh, right. argued that right. yeah, even mathematics you get your you get your your uh, your idea of mathematics from sensory impressions. Russell, um, Russell, yeah, Carnap, yeah, Russell. yeah, 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 yeah uh, and Carnap being uh, you know a member of the logical of Vienna Circle, you know, logical, right. yeah. Um, so you know he's this is this that's he's sort of the fountainhead. To my knowledge, he's the fountainhead. Of I totally agree that in the modern tradition. Yeah, I totally uh, agree. Of, of, of empiricism. I uh, mostly agree. You reserve some skepticism. I'm on the fence here, actually. <laughs> <laughs> my, my testimony partakes in the extraordinary. We'll see. And so you suspend belief right now. I'm uh, going to have to rely on a, the testimony of a council of scientists <laughs> before they can. Sounds pretty Maybe. Fanciful. Uh, yeah, and Maybe. so, like, even, and this, this is huge, even in his. Uh, he, he says our idea of God comes from that, too, that how we actually construct our idea of who God is is that we observe things in the world around us, things like wisdom, and then we amplify them to an infinite proportions. And mm-hmm. that's how we actually construct our idea of, of God, uh, that we don't, we don't have it etched on us, uh, as, as Calvinists would, would affirm, in a, in, a, in a sense of divinity that's, that comes as, oh, with yeah. being image bearers. Right. Rather, what we, that, that, um, that is idea, God a mental habit? Yeah, or he's he's he's, mm-hmm. he's certainly the end of a process of uh, thought, of 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 rational uh, of reasoning in the human mind of some form, whether whether or not it's rational. I mean, Hume would probably mm. disagree that it's rational, but he would that that's where he thinks our idea of God comes from. Is it supreme? Is it various predicates that are brought to the supreme? Is that what he believes uh, our sense of God is? So, for instance, good. If we believe that there is such thing as good in this world, and we can actually name it or even see it, that we uh, we make this into a superlative that we call God, is that kind of what he's doing? Yeah, I th- I'm pretty pretty much. That sounds I, like I Anselm. I 
think that's what he's what he's saying. That's how we get our idea of God. Let me see if I can find my quote. Anselm. Here's here's his quote. He was the Anselm of the 17th century. Our idea of God arises from reflecting on the on the operations of our own mind and augmenting without limit those qualities of goodness and wisdom. Right. So it's Anselm. Is Anselm? I'm I'm, I'm sounds like a incredibly a, ignorant of medieval philosophy. So I will. I will. It sounds like a pretty poor uh, example of perfect being theology or something. Yeah. Like that. Hume is the, the poor man's Anselm. was, <laughs> if I'm right, he was the guy that said that than which uh, none, other, none other, none greater could yeah, be conceived. Yeah, the ontological argument. Yep. Um, yeah, and that's that idea of of God is is um, since and you know we don't have a, uh, an impression uh, sensory data that we can point to and say God, uh, and that's the according to Hume. It may be in your life. <laughs> yeah, you don't have theophanies in your life, Cam. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, spirits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Plural. And that that sort of thing is, you know, it's... it's uh, Multiple occasions. Like a, a guy like, a, a modern guy like James Rachels, who I quoted in my paper, says what, really what you're doing when you're talking about God is your dot. He, he uses Wittgensteinian uh, philosophy of language. Oh, here comes his stinger. But it's Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, it's always on the only last week. <laughs> Yeah, that what we're doing when we, we talk about gods, we're adopting a certain language game that yeah. doesn't have reference to uh, to anything in our sensory experience. Warning. Right. Warning. Epistemic failure. And it's an epistemic failure because he's doing a language game talking about language games. So, <laughs> oh, yes. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and that's, um, and that's another thing. That that <laughs> he lost. <laughs> he lost that game. Oh, yes. And so, you in and the then, game, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make even more cheesy jokes. Okay. <laughs> so he has, he has a distinction between ideas and impressions. Yes. And then his, other, yes. his other distinction is between uh, relations of ideas and matters of fact. And that gets transformed into the synthetic analytic distinction right. in, in Kant, perhaps refined a little bit more. We talked a little about that last week with Quine mm-hmm. and uh, his challenging of that. And yeah, okay. So you, you guys talked about the two dogmas of empiricism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's that's one thing I, I, I bring against Hume personally in terms of my internal critique. I, apparently, you guys have already done the groundwork. <laughs> no, that's awesome because we um, mentioned how influential Quine is. Yeah. And so, yeah. I know. Yeah, he's, Hume was so reading Quine, is, and is a, <laughs> it really was <laughs> the most anachronistic statement you can possibly <laughs> um, make. But well, let's, let, for those that's of, good to have his testimony confirm what we did right. the last time. <laughs> that's right. The question is, do I have a vested interest in confirming your testimony? I'm sorry. Bad jokes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but to, jokes for, for those for those land. who may be listening who haven't, uh, who, who didn't listen to that episode, the, the sure. basic distinction is ma- matters of fact are things that we observe in our everyday life. Uh, are you know that we can they they may or may not be possible i mean well they're possible but uh denying them does not imply a contradiction whereas relations of ideas to deny a, uh, to deny something there implies a contradiction uh it's your your basic distinction between uh a priori and a posteriori knowledge that you right. you're, you're, you acquire knowledge of matters of fact by observing things with your senses you acquire knowledge of relation of ideas by reflecting on uh logically reflecting on concepts uh and, and that's what you know analytic philosophy is, is doing hence its term uh its name analytic is that you're so like for instance you can you can uh, you can analyze relations of ideas even if those ideas do have some sort of reference in the world it doesn't have to be when you when you engage in analytic thinking you don't have to always be doing formal symbolic logic you know you, you can be 
talking about things in the world. Obviously, the most famous example in contemporary epistemology is the discussion of Bachelor. Yeah, and, and, yeah, we uh, touched on that. An- analyzing the concept of Bachelor, what is Bachelor? It's an it's an unmarried male of marriageable age, uh, and so to to say that um, to point to to say to utter the sentence, this married man is a bachelor, implies a contradiction. And so, you know, we can we can deny that simply because of the analytic. Uh, exp- what, trying to think of Ayer's term, explicating or the explanandum. Is that have you read that AJ Ayer? Um, uh, I've read Ayer, but not maybe not that particular. He has a whole whole book actually trying to answer Hume's problem of induction, um, hmm. which we'll get to here. In a and he sec. uses the word. I think he call it, he has specific terms Exponendum. for what you're doing in analytic philosophy. There's there's the term you're you're attempting to explicate, and there's your actual explication of it. Um, and I forget. I think he uses Latin uh, <laughs> because Quine always says that too. He's like, there's uh, definitions and definendums. It's just like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you got to learn how to speak speak philosophy. I'm defining something, uh, but you know. Even so, that's what that's what, uh, that's what analytic statements involve. They involve uh, contradictions, uh, simple, simple, simple contradictions in terms of your concepts. Even though if they may involve uh, matters of fact, uh, like a, like a bachelor, for instance. Um, whereas synthetic synthetic statements involve things that are grounded in fact. So saying uh, saying a triangle is a three sided object, that's an analytic statement, uh, and that's a different statement than saying. There is a triangle on this piece of paper. Right. That is a you're, what you're doing there is you're engaging in a synthetic statement. You're, you're, yeah. Uh, Observation. You're, yeah. You're, you're you're bringing together the concept with something in the world, um, and so that's that's his 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 big dogma is that distinction between relations of ideas and matters of fact. And obviously, Quine, as you guys have, have already talked about, takes that down with a vengeance. So you would say that that is your first uh, line of of criticism to Hume is. That's not Hume himself can't explain that distinction if he's yes. truly consistent. Yes, that's that's exactly right, and that's that's what uh, one of the things that Quine says is that what he, what Hume actually is doing in making that distinction is making a metaphysical assumption. Yeah, right. I mean, you could only do this metaphysically. Like a Thomist would say, it this is not a distinction between analytic and synthetic. It's a it's a distinction between a- essence and accident. The essence of a triangle might be a three uh, three sided geometric shape. It's it's accident could be a relation, for instance, or or better put, a uh, location, you know, which is one of the one of the ten categories. Or how long being, each of those sides sides are. Would be or the, well, for instance, on the paper, on the paper yeah. is a is an accident to the essence of a triangle. The essence. So we're we're, we're making predicates here. Yeah, I guess maybe the only thing that that uh, that might, to my knowledge, make it different from from what you're talking about is that. When we talk about matters of fact, not only are we talking about accidents, we're actually talking about their existence um, uh, of that particular uh, contingent synthetic thing. Right. Do, but so does, the, the first the first point was the essence of a triangle. The second point was its location. Yeah. Which I mean, these are these are meta, these are meta, these are metaphysical problems inherently. Yeah. Yeah. They are. They are. And um, so, like Quine and his two dogmas of empiricism takes on that analytic synthetic distinction. The basic thrust of his what he what he says is to boil it all down to one thing how do you explicate or how do you analytically analyze an, an, analyze analyze <laughs> what was it Anal- the concept of analyst analyticity yeah that, that right? got us hung up for a little bit how, yeah. how do you how do you analytically explicate the concept of analyticity elasticity without assuming analyticity 
Right, that's the metaphysical assumption. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not just you. Mom! <laughs> Works every time. Mom! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're, I t- you, you skip a vowel and, and a consonant syllable. together. A whole syllable. Yeah. yeah, analyticity. Is that what I just, do? Just say analytic and then add an idiot. This is, Daniel, this is a hangover from last week. So we, we oh, had, yeah. oh yeah. I did that. an inside joke. So... Yeah, you're validating Jonathan at this point. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> he's been vindicated. Yeah, you're providing, uh, you know, more. You're allowing his testimony to be more plausible to us now. <laughs> so, so, what w- what would you say then is is the reform critique uh, of Hume? Um, well, this is the this is part Hume. of the. I think the reform critique is gonna is gonna incorporate Quine's critique. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you you're. Common grace, you know. He's right. Quine has 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 pointed up. A it's huge like you guys problem. set this up. I, it, really, a hundred percent honestly, we totally didn't uh, yeah. anticipate this. Yeah, Quine, Quine set up a huge. I've never met this for, man before. Uh, <laughs> this is a quote from Quine. Uh, but for all its a priori reasonableness, a boundary between analytic and synthetic statements simply has not been drawn. Yeah, that there is such a distinction to be drawn at all is an unempirical dogma of empiricists, a yes. metaphysical article of faith. Uh, and so, God forbid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's horrible. Oh. metaphysics. That's no, just, that's no, metaphysics. dogmas, metaphysics. Yeah, blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, the Greeks are going mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> oh yeah. So the question is from from whence comes the concept of analyticity? Analyticity, right? Yeah. Anatomy. So where does it come from? Yeah, you're right. Analyticity. I think that's actually <laughs> you're right. You are right. That's how. That's what spell check has done on my paper. So I think uh. analyticity. Uh, from you know where does that concept come from? Uh, it doesn't come from matters of fact. And it doesn't come from if it's to to say it comes from uh, analytic thought is to engage in an incredibly vicious circle. You know, mm-hmm. you're appealing to the concept of of something being analytic to explain what what analytic is. So that you know, you how do you right. how do you get out of that? You've presupposed <laughs> what analyticity is. Well, and and to project <laughs> to project into the future, this was. Uh, what we touched on in logical positivism was they had this, uh, you know, human notion of the verification theory of meaning, which everything needs to be verified. Now, what accounts for that? Where do you get that, that everything needs to be verified on a scientific level? Well, you're just going to have to assume it going into it. Yeah, that's it. And that's his second dogma of empiricism that Quine brings up. Uh-huh. Reductionism? Reductionism. Yeah, that's there right. you go. Uh, that, and that's, that's, you know, that's Hume. Yeah. That every, every state, meaningful statement can be reduced to a sensory impression. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what the logical positivists are going to hang their hat on as well. Yeah. Well, that brings an end to part one of our discussion with Daniel Schrock on Hume and Miracles. If you'd like to hear more from us, please visit us online at reformforum.org. And next week, you will find part two of this discussion on the website. If you'd like to get some information and resources from Westminster, please visit them online at wts.edu. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Philosophy with Theologians. <laughs>